We've been working our way through the book of Hebrews for a few weeks now and I wonder how you're going personally. You hear all these challenges, uh, see that you do not drift away, hang on, do not harden your hearts as they did in the desert. Uh, and maybe you're glad because you've been reminded how great Jesus is and how wonderful God's promises are and how nothing else compares to him and you're feeling on top of the wall, you know, you hear those warnings, you think, well, that's not me. Uh, it's great because Jesus got me safe. But it might be that you're one of those who's feeling the pressure, the really worrying thoughts are coming into your mind. What, what if I'm one of those he's talking about who, who are drifting away? Well, there are certainly uh, days, uh, weeks, maybe months sometimes when I feel like uh, I, I'm falling away, that I'm not with Jesus when I'm facing temptation right now and the pressure seems to be getting to me. Uh, I find it almost impossible to struggle against some things. Uh, uh, what if I'm facing temptation right now at work and opposition and to keep my head down and be quiet and, and just put Jesus aside? Uh, what if you know I'm, I'm hearing strive to enter God's rest and the warnings about the Israelites who failed and and it sends a chill down my spine. Well, today there's hope because the writer's not aiming to get us to pull our socks up and be a bit more religious or flagellate ourselves. No, his aim is to throw us back onto Jesus who he's just told us at the end of chapter 4 is... Uh, is um, understands our weaknesses and enables us to have boldness and confidence to approach God's throne of grace to receive mercy and help. And I trust that by the time that we're done today, you'll feel the depths of God's love for you, that he's not saying these things to destroy you, but to come bring you back. Uh, but it might take a little bit of work to get the comfort and the hope because one of the most striking things about the first 10 verses of Hebrews 5, which we've just read, is it's just how strange it all sounds. I mean, take verse 7, for instance. During his earthly life, Jesus offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, wonderful hope in there because he became the source of eternal salvation for all who believe him, but it's just surrounded by all this strange stuff, so strange in many ways. Strange because it refers to this guy in the Old Testament who only appears twice, this Melchizedek character, uh, wants to introduce him in Genesis chapter 14, and then he gets mentioned in a song a thousand years later by King David in Psalm 110. And so blink as you're reading the Old Testament and you miss it, and yet somehow... He turns out to be critical to God's plan somehow. And he's not mentioned anywhere else. Stranger again, I think, is verse 7, where God the Son prays to God the Father and, and he's only heard because of his reverence or his reverence submission in other translations. Was there a chance that the Father wouldn't hear the Son? I mean, it raises Trinitarian questions as well and, and so on. But, but I think the strangest thing in this passage uh, in my mind, at least, is in verse 9, that Jesus became perfect. He learned something in verse 8, and then only after that was he made perfect. And I know David spoke about that a couple of weeks ago, 
when we looked at chapter 2, but it really is striking, isn't it, that in some way Jesus was not perfect before he went through all of this and, and it seems completely inconsistent with our thinking about God. Jesus is the pre-existent second person of the Trinity. Uh, He is the radiance of God's glory back in chapter 1. He is the exact representation of God's being from chapter 1. How is it that God could be made perfect in any sense? Well, the first thing to note is that without this happening, whatever it is, there's no forgiveness or salvation. You see what it says? And Having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who believe him. And so whatever this was, it needed to have happened if there were to stand any chance of knowing God and sharing eternity with him. The second thing to see is that perfect here doesn't mean moral. David talked about that a few weeks ago, uh, that perfect can sometimes mean morally good. You know, he's a perfectly well-behaved child and uh, outstanding, faultless behaviour. Uh, but, but that's not what Hebrews is talking about when it says that Jesus became perfect. Rather, perfection here and often means complete, mature, finished. You take this cup here, uh, beautiful cup. Uh, I, it's one I use at home. Uh, it's a perfect cup. It's a perfect cup. Uh, it's perfect because... It does its job perfectly well. It's uh, complete. It holds liquid. I can't say that about all my cups. Uh, I can easily transfer it to my lips and take a sip. Uh, It's easy to find in the drawer. I mean, look at the colours. It's like nothing else I've got there. And and even better, it's there always because Amelia, it used to be hers, but none of the kids will have it now because it's too kiddy. And so uh, I get to use it all the time and there's always a cup for me. Uh, It's not moral in any sense. It's not, you know, a good cup today or a bad cup tomorrow. Uh, It's got no brain and it can't decide to be evil or wicked. It's but it's whole, it's complete, it's perfect. And, and that's what Hebrews is talking about, that in some way Jesus was incomplete, but through the suffering and death that he went through, he became complete in some way. Now, fourth thing we're told is that how he was made complete. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That he was made perfect by learning obedience from what he suffered. Now what that doesn't mean, it it can't mean that he was disobedient beforehand because he is and he was, he always has been sinless. Uh, The writers made every effort to make sure that we understand that. He said it just a few verses before in chapter 4 and verse 15, that Jesus was without sin. He said, you know, he said it ahead of time so that when we get here, we don't go, oh, hang on, you know, he was just a bad guy who somehow got better. No. So it's not that he became, he was disobedient and became obedient. So what on earth does it mean that Jesus learned obedience? Well, I think it means a few things. Firstly, he learned the cost of obedience what it was that obedience was demanding and how terribly painful doing the right thing can be. There's a difference between knowing something theoretically beforehand that there'll be a cost and actually experiencing it later. A firefighter who's run into a fire to save someone and is burnt knows the cost, 
has learned the cost more than the raw recruit who's only ever run drills. Right? Jesus learned the cost of obedience, but he learned something else as well. He learned what it is to be tempted. After all, he'd never been tempted before he came and dwelt here amongst us. Never tempted in heaven where he was sitting in his father's presence and glory, where he had everything, he never lacked anything, but he came and he was tempted. He was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, tempted when he was hungry to to eat the devil's food, tempted to, to bow down and worship the devil. He was tempted other times too. He was tempted by the Pharisees to back down from his hard teaching and to be liked by them and accepted. And he was tempted not to go through with his father's plan for him. And so he learned what it cost not to give in to temptation. Third thing, though, is he learned that obedience to his father's will and perfect plan would mean paying the ultimate price. It would cost him his life. The cost of obedience was death, his death on the cross. Not that he was thinking, how great it would be to experience something like that, You know, I want to die. He wasn't like a death wish. He didn't want to be hurt. He wasn't a masochist. It wasn't that he was over life and, you know, just wanted to end it all. Rather, it's that he desired to do his father's will more than the way he valued his own life. And it was proven. Right? Theoretically knew that beforehand, but proven when he did it. And the writing is not just guessing at that with no basis. No, he... He anchors that statement, that claim in a particular event where Jesus prayed with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Remember where it is? The Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was betrayed and killed. Uh, Let me read to you from, from Mark chapter 14 and verse 32 onwards. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little further, fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. See, Jesus didn't want to die. And what is he begging? If there's any other way, Father, let's do it that way. Please, Father, not by the cross, not by that way, any other way, if there is another way. But there was no other way. Do you not think that had there been another way that the Father wouldn't have said, okay, Jesus, yes, let's rethink this and and do it that other way? You know, if he said, okay, all right, Jesus, thank you for that prayer. Just remind me, just drop and give me 10 push-ups. That'll be enough to save the world. Do you think he wouldn't have done that? Do you think, uh, he, he, you know, if if it had been just a matter of helping people be a little more religious uh, or having better-looking temples, or providing a bit more resources, uh, or, or having more worshipful singing experiences, that, that that would empty the cup of God's wrath, that he wouldn't have taken it? Don't you think he would have done anything other 
than sending his son to die on the cross, if that would work, would he not have? And so we're told that his prayer was heard because of his reverence or his reverence submission because in the end his prayer was not ultimately, don't let me die, Father. He didn't want to die under the strong hand of the Father and he prayed that another way would be found. But his ultimate prayer was, your way, Father, not mine. Not my will be done, but yours be done. Now, some people think that adding that to the end of a prayer, just tacking on as the last thing that you say in a prayer, uh, means that you don't really trust God. It's a faithless prayer. It's a cop-out. You know, please heal Jim of his cancer, but not my will, but yours be done. Uh, what, what you're doing is giving God a reason not to do what you're asking, that it's faithless. They think it's not real trust. It gives God a, 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 an escape clause for not doing what you want. But in fact, to pray not my will but yours be done, is the ultimate prayer of faith. It's the real prayer of faith because it says to our heavenly Father, look, you're the one who's in control. I know you love us. I know you're always working for good. And I know that whatever you decide to do in this matter, here's what we want, but you've got to make the decision And whatever you decide is what matters and will be right and appropriate and good and proper, no matter what it is, whether it's what we have asked for or not. And so your will be done. It's the prayer of faith. And that's Jesus' prayer. And verse 7 tells us he was heard because of his reverence. His reverence expressed in committing his life to his father, but also in saying, no, not my way, your way, your will be done. And God, he was heard because of his reverence, that is, God answered his prayer. God answered it, in fact, straight away. God did his will rather than just uh, what Jesus was asking for initially. He did his will because Judas came along with the guards just then and the crowds and they took Jesus away to be tried and beaten and hung on a cross to die. That's where Jesus drank the cup. Right? The cup of God's wrath, he drank it right down to the dregs. And so it was that way that he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Because it's only by this death, by going through with the obedience, by bearing the cost, by putting his life and death submissively and obediently into his father's hands that he could achieve this. No other way could be taken to achieve the same results. And that's been the argument of the letter to the Hebrews up to this point that we've been looking at in church these last few weeks in Hebrews 2. Jesus had to go through suffering. Why? 2 verse 10, for in bringing many sons to daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. It was entirely appropriate. It was perfectly fitting because, verse 14, he had to be human like us in order to suffer death. Verse 14, chapter 2. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil. 
and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by their fear of death. For it's clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For see, since he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. You see, it's a priest that we need when we're tempted, when we're drifting away, when we're struggling and we're, we're failing to strive to enter God's rest. We need someone who's not us who can make atonement for us. But it has to be someone who, who also understands us and who gets it and who can represent us to God and God to us. But So it's only a human that can be our priest because he's got to represent us to God, but it's only God who can pay the price for all humanity. And so we read in Hebrews 4 and verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. It's that last bit that's the important one, yet without sin, because that's what sets Jesus apart from every other priest. God had established priests before for hundreds of years, thousands of years, but the problem all along with every priest who's ever been there was that they were just as sinful as the people they were trying to help. I've got a friend who's, uh, brother uh, is a drug addict uh, and some years ago he, he thought he'd get help for his problem. Uh, you know, I was, had an intervention, they encouraged him to go get help. He joined uh, a group that he thought could help him but it was a group that was entirely made up of practicing ongoing addicts and so no surprise when these uh, guys who um, you know, said they were there to help each other ended up not meeting to support each other in stopping, but they all started meeting to shoot up behind the pub they were meeting in in Penrith. You know, it's hopeless. And and that's the problem with the Old Testament priesthood. They were all sinners too. Right? See, the whole Old Testament system, the sacrificial system with all of its rules and regulations, temples, priests, sacrifices, ceremonies, was all set up it was all set up to deal with one problem and one problem only. How can a holy God ever be right with people who are sinful, who are disobedient, who, when tempted, give in to temptation, who stumble and fall all the time when presented with God's ways? We go the other way. How, how can God relate to people like that, to people like us? And the answer is that the, the, the sacrificial system, the ceremonial system of Israel set up and the priesthood was he can relate to us through death, through blood. And so they sacrificed bulls and goats, pigeons, sheep, doves over and over and over and over again, bull after bull after bull and sheep after sheep after sheep and all because sinful people deserve death. And there is no more graphic reminder than to have thousands, millions of animals slaughtered on your behalf day after day after day. 
The temple was said to stink of the smell of death. The blood flowed out from the channels from behind the altar down into the Kidron Valley. And, and you know what? That whole system that was set up to show us that blood had to be spilt for a holy God to ever be right with you, with sinful people, it never worked. Never took away one sin. Never paid one penalty. In fact, later on in Hebrews, we're going to read uh, when we come back to it uh, towards the end of the year, but in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's in chapter 10. Impossible for them to take away sins. And so Jesus comes as the one true sacrifice for sins, the one true priest who can offer the sacrifice, not in the old Levitical system, the order of Judaism that was there, which never worked, but in a new order. Uh, one, we're told here, in the order of Melchizedek, uh, which the author is going to explain more fully, and we'll get to that in chapter 7. I'll leave that for you to figure out for the time being, and we'll get to it sometime later in the year. And so to save us, there was only one way, because no other way works. And, and that was the way of the cross, through the shame, through the humiliation, through the scourging, through the pain. But, but worse than that, through the spiritual agony of having the heavenly Father turn his face away, of enduring the very wrath of God upon a sinful race, of experiencing the anger and punishment of God, the wrath of God, when before there'd only ever been love and right relationship and care. That is where you see the love of God. You see it in the Garden of Gethsemane as he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. You see it as he took Peter and James and John along with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. As he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's in agony, spiritual agony, as he prayed that if possible that the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, this cup of your wrath that I'm about to drink, yet not what I will but what you will. You see it as he willingly went to the cross to pay for your sins and for my sins, to die our death, to free us from slavery to death and to the devil. As he learned obedience, that's where you see the love of God. As he learned obedience, as he was made perfect through suffering and so became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. That is where you see the love of God. That is the love of God. Lots of people will say they want to believe that God is loving. You know, they'll say, oh, God love you. But, but, but they really have no idea what the love of God is like. They imagine that for God to be loving, that there'd have to be no hell and no punishment, that, that he'd make all of our lives now all rainbows and sunshine. Uh, or, or maybe they imagine in his love that he's like a harmless old grandpa sitting on his rocking chair, smiling serenely in his dotage, but, but looking helplessly down at us and making nice thoughts about us. But, but that's got nothing to do with the love of God. That is not the love of God. This is the love of God. 
powerful, sacrificial, effective, not just wishing us nice things, but doing what had to be done to save us at the cost of his son's life. Now, I just want to draw out some implications of all that for us. And I think we've got three. The first one is that the only appropriate response to to his love and what he's done, the only appropriate response is awe and thanksgiving. We ought to be humbled by his love for undeserving us. Does your heart well up with, with sadness at your own sin that meant that he had to go there for you? And but also with thankfulness that he did it anyway? Do you do you reflect on these things and think about the cross and and say to God, Thank you, thank you, thank you? Or or does it just leave you cold? What an awesome thing our God has done that Jesus has done for us. Secondly, it ought to lead us to repentance and to trust. Jesus' constant refrain through his life and teaching was repent and believe. The the same with the apostles, their teaching consistent, repent and believe. Uh, Repentance is, is turning away from your old life in rebellion. He went through all of that. He loved us like that, not so that we could just go on with doing what we like, whenever we like, wherever we like, with whoever we like. He did it so as to restore our relationship with our Father in heaven, that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again. That's why this salvation only comes to those who now obey him. He is our priest, he is our king. And believe, so repent, turn back and believe. That is trust, believe his promises, trust them. Trust that when he says it's paid for, it's paid for. Trust that when he says it's done, it's done. When he says you're forgiven, that you're forgiven. But more than that, just not just trusting his promises, but trusting him with your whole life and your future. Trusting ourselves to his ways and not to our ways. That his will be done, whatever it is that we may want. Do you trust Jesus with your life, with your decisions, with all of your ways, your future? Third implication though is know that Jesus can help you in your temptations and he, he does sympathize with us. That's what this is teaching us. He is our priest who understands us completely. God has established him as our great high priest. He represents us to God and he represents God to us. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He he has walked in your shoes. He, He knows all of the troubles and difficulties of life, right? Family problems. What it's like to be hungry and not know where you're next. He knows all of that. When, when we think we're complete failures, he's there. He is our great high priest who has done all that needed to be done. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Something we don't often reflect on about Jesus. It's called his session, the session of Christ. He's in session with his Father on behalf of his people. He's not out to get you. He's not withholding from you. He he loves you enough to give his life for you. And, And there is no area of life that he cannot 
help you with. There is no temptation too strong. There is no sin he cannot deal with except the sin of walking away from you. He's seen it all. And so pray for help when you are tempted. Pray to him. Pray that God would lead you not into temptation but deliver you from it. And know that even when you are tempted, that he died for you, he has paid for you, but know that he is with you, uh, that he can help you, and if you trust him with your life, that he will give you the strength you need to resist so that you will not drift away. The warnings of this book to not drift away, to not harden your hearts, to keep your confidence, they're not there to throw you back on yourself and your own strength and your own efforts and your own religiosity They're given so that you'll keep throwing yourself back onto Jesus. See, the Christian life is all of grace. We are saved by grace. We stand by grace. We we go on by God's grace. And so we need to keep coming back to the cross as our hope and our salvation, coming back to our great high priest, the son who learned obedience from what he suffered, who was heard by his father because of his reverence who learned obedience from what he suffered and was once made perfect, became the source of eternal salvation for all who will obey him. Take comfort in that. Our Father, we do thank you that Jesus has done all that needed to be done. Thank you that this was your plan from the beginning and thank you that even though it cost you, your son, And it cost him his life and the agony of being torn away from you for a time. We thank you that he did it, that he drank the cup of your wrath down to the dregs, right to the bottom, that he has paid for our sins. And so we pray, please, Father, you'll help us to be those who obey him, to be in awe, to be thankful, to know your uh, incredible love for us, to know that we can't make it in our own strength, but to keep trusting you. Uh, Help us to repent of those things that we really are indulging and struggling with, that we haven't committed to you. We pray that our vision will be filled with you rather than distracted by this world. And we pray that we might constantly keep looking back to Jesus and looking ahead to Jesus, looking back to his death, where he has paid for us and looking ahead to being reunited with him. And so help us to run the race of this life in faith, in trusting you with a perseverance. Throw off the sin that easily entangles and keep heading towards you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to love you and remember your love for us. And we pray that by your grace we might stand strong and bold for the Lord Jesus. Amen.